<clears throat> this is a Romy cast. Get tired of being Beatles. I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in here for oh, no, that's so all way. Way. That John finally got just after that, and we were both of the do what you wanted to do, do what you wanted to If you think it was good, keep it. If you don't, scrap it. Yeah, it's not bad, that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guest on this episode is a man who has been on the drum kit for thousands, yes, I said thousands, thousands of recordings. Uh, Barry Keane was one of the hottest session drummers in the Canadian music industry, but you probably know him best for his work with the Gordon Lightfoot Band, where he is provided the backbeat for over 40 years. Today, Barry is going to talk about an album full of great songs and full of great memories for him, 1964's North American release, Something New. Just to remind you that the website for this podcast is romicast.com. That is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T, romicast.com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far. Uh, And you can listen to it right on the website. There's a built-in player, so you need go no further than there if you wish. This is the third episode of Series 3, and you can find all of the episodes from Series 1 and Series 2 as well as Series 3 at the website or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Always a good idea, by the way, if you're a fan of the podcast, you don't want to miss an episode, just subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts and it will magically appear on whatever device you listen to them on. So let's get back to Barry Keane, today's guest. Uh, I was just looking through his CV, and you look at the big-name producers who he's worked with. Phil Ramone jumps out, Lenny Warrenker, uh, Russ Teitelman. Russ Teitelman jumped out because uh, I know you know this if you're a Beatles fan. Russ Teitelman produced the George Harrison self-titled album, George Harrison, in, I want to say it was 1978. Great album. It all connects, folks. It all connects back to the Beatles. Uh, Barry also also played on close to 400 albums with the likes of Canadian music legends uh, Anne Murray, Bachman Turner Overdrive, uh, Carol King, Shania Twain, Ian Tyson, Ian Thomas, and many, 
many more. Be sure to check out a couple of episodes I did last series with Barry, uh, and he tells a couple of great stories in those episodes, including the story behind how he got into the music biz and also the story behind the recording of one of Gordon Lightfoot's greatest hits. Barry plays on it. It is The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. So go back and seek those out if you haven't already listened to them. Hey, Barry, great to see you again. Welcome back to the show. And as always, thanks for taking the time to talk to me about the Beatles. Paul, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for asking me again. And um, you don't have to twist my arm to get me to talk about the Beatles. <laughs> and well, the people were clamoring for it, Barry. They were uh, clamoring for a return. There you go. So there you go. <laughs> hey, uh, so what is the first memory of the album that we're going to talk about today. If, in fact, you have a first memory of that specific album the first time you heard it or saw it or whatever. I think I was drawn to the album, I think. I mean, we're going back a few years now. Um, The song, And I Love Her. I heard McCartney, and I think as we've established the last time I was here, I'm a bit of a softy. Love that song, and of course, it was the new Beatle album that was coming out in Canada, so I had to have it. And uh, and I think, looking at the cover, I think probably, uh, with all due respect to Robert Freeman and the with the Beatles album, Beatlemania with the Beatles album, this I think is the number one cover for me really so we'll talk about the cover later but folks if you haven't seen it uh the the cover of something new which was an american release and i'll get into that in a second but it's a photo that a still photographer took of them appearing on the ed sullivan show and that's so that really hit the mark for you man seeing the beatles i mean i wasn't alone back then but seeing the beatles on the ed sullivan show um was so impactful for me, seeing, I mean, not only the mu- hearing, not only the music, seeing the boys with their suits and seeing Ringo up on the drum riser, which is obviously depicted on the, the cover, seeing the drummer being so f- foremost, not in front, but still not in the pit, not in the dark in the back, but seeing him uh, so visible, it was really impactful on me. So over the years, some of the U.S. releases uh, in some circles have taken on the reputation of being somewhat second class to the the original British releases, albums with bizarre track orders and song selections, different covers that didn't resemble the original British releases at all, as we've come to see many, many years later. Um, Do you buy into that? At all? Or like, is this in any way inferior to the British ones, or is this your youth? The only thing that rubs me the wrong way about these albums that came out in North America, a little bit the order, uh, it's a, I think the uh, sequence of the songs is a little bit different than George Martin would have liked or the boys mm-hmm. would have liked. And the man involved at Capitol Records in the U.S., I read a little bit about Dave Dexter Jr., yeah, yeah. who is listed as like a co-producer or something like that on these albums. He hated rock and roll. He was a jazz guy. He had no affinity at all for the acts that Capitol had signed, and he refused to put out singles. He refused to put out 
have anything to do with Dave Clark or, or any of those bands. And uh, it just, it kind of rubs me the wrong way that this kind of got released against his best wishes. Um, but uh, the songs are so great. And, uh, and again, the cover is so great. And the, t- the time in my life where this album came out, everything was so impactful. Yeah, and I think fair, fair enough, right? We we associate things with our youth for the most part in a positive light, and that's one of the things. You know, even even me who grew up in the seventies, a decade after you did, but I grew up in the seventies, discovered the Beatles then, and you couldn't get the British releases over here. So something new, uh, the North American version of of uh, Rubber Soul, all of that. Those were sure. my Beatles albums. Yep. So. Uh, Let's uh, give a little bit of context before we dive into this uh, track by track. It is late 1963, and the Beatles have broken in the UK, big time. Just remember, 1963 was the year of Beatlemania in the UK. It was 1964 that Beatlemania really hit uh, in the United States. Uh, It had hit a little earlier in Canada, but for all intents and purposes, it was 1964 where they really exploded. Now, despite a run of number one singles and albums in the UK during 1963, as you were just alluding to, Barry, Capital USA, which was actually bizarrely owned by EMI, which is the Beatles' UK label, declined to release any of the Beatles' music in America. So Love Me Do, Please Please Me, She Loves You, I Want to Hold Your Hand, as well as the albums Please Please Me and With the Beatles, all deemed as not being suitable for the U.S. market. Capital Records executive Dave Dexter Jr., who was indeed a jazz guy from Kansas City, Missouri, was the man behind those decisions. And he was also, just as an aside, which you alluded to, he was behind the decision to reconfigure, or as I call it, Frankenstein up all of the early U.S. releases of Beatles albums. So different track orders, often making up entirely different albums up until 1967, when the Beatles signed a new agreement with EMI, which guaranteed the Beatles uh, that their U.S. releases would mirror their U.K. releases. So the last one that came out that wasn't the same was Revolver. After that, the New Deal, Sgt. Pepper onwards, they had to be exactly the same. Uh, Dexter also remastered many of the songs and in some cases changed the stereo picture and added considerable reverb to some tracks, all of which the Beatles weren't happy about. Now, having said all of that, when the Beatles did hit the USA, they couldn't get capital. They couldn't get product out fast enough. In 64, Capitol Records in the US released, (laughs) I still laugh at this, one year, they released 11 singles and four albums by the Beatles. <laughs> the albums were Meet the Beatles in January of 64, the Beatles' second album in April of 64, Something New, the album we're going to talk about today, in July of 64, and then they tossed out Beatles 65 in December of 64. So uh, Dave Dexter Jr. didn't want much to do with the Beatles initially, but when they started selling and hit, they couldn't get product out fast enough, and that was the business back then. Now, further complicating things, you had Capitol Records in Canada, which was doing its own thing in the initial stages of Beatlemania. Capital Canada had been releasing Beatles singles in 1963 and had moderate success, uh, and they released Beatlemania with the Beatles in December of 1963, and that was that was a 
track for track the U.S. release of With the Beatles. Pardon me, the U.K. release of With the Beatles. And then Capital Canada released Twist and Shout in February of 64. And then in April of 64, the Canadian release was Long Tall Sally. After that, the parent company in the U.S. nixed any separate releases in Canada and the North American catalog would be the same going forward. So this album, Something New, was the first Beatles album released in both Canada and the USA at the same time. The album contains 11 songs, eight of which were included on the UK album, A Hard Day's Night. And the remaining songs were Slow Down and Matchbox from the UK Long Tall Sally EP. Remember, EPs were still kind of a thing in the UK, not so much in North America. And then there was sort of a novelty track called Komm, Gib mir deine Hand, pardon the German, uh, which was the German language version of I Want to Hold Your Hand. Something new was released less than a month after the United Artists soundtrack LP for A Hard Day's Night came out and five songs, I'll Cry Instead, Tell Me Why, and I Love Her, Happy Just to Dance With You, and If I Fell, appeared on both releases, which must have been a really weird thing. Uh, Two different records out at the same time containing some of the same songs. Uh, Capitol didn't have the right to release a soundtrack album for the film A Hard Day's Night. That was why United Artists did that. But they did have the rights to release the tracks that the Beatles recorded in North America. So they put the album out ahead of the movie United Artists did and it was a million seller and it kind of stole some of the thunder of something new because it came out about a month after the movie's release and a month after the Hard Day's Night soundtrack album so this album did well but never hit number one on Billboard Cashbox or Record World um Still, weird situation. Something New was issued in mono and stereo, and it was the only Beatles album by Capitol, the early albums, to contain all tracks in true stereo. Other releases by the label had a mix of true stereo and mock stereo. Uh, Mock stereo kids was where uh, one side of the spectrum had the treble and the other had the bass removed, so it created kind of a fake stereo. The mono version of Something New contained several alternate versions. We're going to talk about the stereo today, but the mono version, uh, I'll Cry Instead, has an additional verse on it, on the mono version. It's the first verse repeated, but it has an additional verse on there. it was edited out as well of the UK releases, so at that time, that was the only place where you were going to find that. The album hit number two on the Billboard charts, held out of top spot by the United Artists soundtrack to A Hard Day's Night. It was in Billboard's charts for 41 weeks, had initial sales of over 2 million, showed up on Chum's album index here in Canada at number five the week of July 27th, 1964, moved up to number two the following week, and then hit number one the week of October 26th, where it remained until the end of November before it was displaced by Elvis's Roustabout. Uh, as per chartmasters.org, the source I use, something new has a global physical sales figure of 2.2 million, which ranks it the lowest seller of the Beatles' original North American releases. So there you go. Anything to add to that, my friend? I think you pretty much covered it. <laughs> but, um, and I'm trying to think. I know I have a Hard Day's Night album at home. I'm not sure why I was so attracted to this album because the songs are so similar. There's a few differences, as you alluded to. But um, I have 
I don't know. Just for me personally, I have better memories of this record. Well, it might have been too, Barry. That Remember that North American one? It's a red cover with sort of some uh, black and white crop shots of the Beatles. But as was the case back then, it was a soundtrack album. And Unitas Artists, they had the songs that the Beatles sang from the movie, but then they padded it out with a bunch of instrumental tracks of the songs with the George Martin Orchestra. Oh, right. So yes. as, as yes. a kid, you were going to go, well... Yeah, no, you're right. I don't yes. want to, So if you bought this one, you just got all Beatles. You didn't have to skip over the instrumental tracks. Maybe that was it. And you got the great cover. You got the much better cover. I Absolutely. Agree. All right, so let's take this uh, sucker out and put it on the virtual turntable. And it is side one, cut one, I'll cry instead. Nice album opener. I got every reason on earth to be mad. Not to make a negative comment right off the hop, but thanks to David Dexter Jr., it just seems to me to be an odd opening tune. Even though I know it was a big hit, I just think that maybe when I get home, maybe there are some other more impactful songs to hit you in the forehead, between the eyes, than this one. It just, I mean, it's a great song. It's its that country influence. I know John was, at this time, very much influenced by, he had listened to a lot of country stuff. And uh, the rockabilly, there's a little bit of rockabilly country slash in this. And it's, um, I mean, it's a great song. It was a big hit. It just... I don't know, the sequence, it just seems like a funny opening tune to me. Well, you weren't the only one who thought that because it was, so did uh, at least one other person we know of, Dick Lester, who was the director of A Hard Day's Night. Right. This was originally supposed to be the song for the breakout sequence. And uh, now, if you haven't seen the movie, there's it's maybe one of the best moments in the movie. Uh, They're trying to get away from all of the, the... stuff going on around them they go at the back of a building run down some fire escape stairs and they run around a field now in the movie they do it to can't buy me love because once dick lester heard that he went that's a way better song way more energy and i'll cry instead didn't even make the movie no you're right and uh that film sequence of them running around the field oh I know, kind of Monty Python-ish, like the twits running around the field and all that stuff. And a great sequence. This song, I I think he made the right choice in Can't Buy Me Love. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, Cynthia Lennon says that the song, uh, in hindsight, was a bit of a cry for help. Uh, She says it reflects the frustration that he, John, felt at the time. He was the idol of millions, but the freedom and fun of the early days had gone. And uh, John later said in an interview, the line in the song that resonated for him, a chip on my shoulder that's bigger than my feet, uh, was an adequate indication of his feelings at that particular time. Yeah, and I mean, it can be argued that it was written about his marriage with Cynthia. It could be argued. But I I tend to agree with Cynthia that that loss of innocence, I can't imagine that level of fame. I mean, people get famous and then they get extremely famous and then you're the Beatles, where you can't go anywhere without 
somebody snapping a picture or sticking a microphone in your face or or knocking on your you know the window of your car or uh, you know keeping up all night at your hotel room like I can't imagine and it would seem like a dream come true for people until you would have experienced like I remember being in Buffalo New York uh, taking my softball team to go to a hockey game as kind of a male bonding, team bonding kind of a thing. And we were staying at the Hilton in Buffalo. And one afternoon I went down to go in the gift shop and a security guard stopped me. And I said, oh, isn't it open? And he said, it's open, but Wayne Gretzky's in there. And like, if you can imagine that, I mean, imagining Wayne just trying to have a little peace and quiet just to go to the gift shop without somebody asking for an autograph or getting a picture. I mean, that level of fame could be a curse. Like, and I could see John speaking of that loss of, loss of innocence and the fun had kind of, was kind of going away from the whole thing. So the lyrics uh, could be taken either way, but uh, I, I can see the loss of innocence for sure. Hey, uh, I, I did. We we sort of touched on it, but uh, a lot of the songs on this album come from a hard day's night. Um, what is your memory of seeing that movie for the first time? Do you do you have one? Like it must have been. We got to see this. Absolutely. I mean, in awe of all four of the Fab Four. Uh, I liked all four of them. It was great to see them. Their sense of humor. Um, I remember the, the the shot of them being in the train with Paul's grandfather and saying he's clean. And j just their sense of humor was so different from people I grew up with. And, I mean, the songs were so great. But seeing them being themselves, it really seemed like they were being themselves and being funny in their own way. Uh, the Scouse accent was just so beatly. Uh, there was just so many elements of that. And and them being silly and being twits running around a field. And uh, I don't, there were just so many things that were so different and so likable about them. Yeah. I've heard in rock stars um, and musicians in a few interviews sort of from that era say, uh, I want to say it was one of the guys might have been one of the guys from the birds who saw it when it came out and they saw that movie and just went that's what i want to do yeah there that's, you go. that's what i want to be well now and if you don't mind we can talk a little bit about the i'll cry instead because there are some things that are uh, for me were kind of interesting sure. um ringo the drums are not prominent he he plays he always played and still plays a great rockabilly feel where it's kind of somewhere in between the dotted eighth note feel, the swing feel, and straight eighths. And he overdubbed a tambourine, which is definitely the in-between beats, as my good friend Tom Sesniak, one of the great musicians in this country, called the in-between beats, uh, either the, the swing dotted eighth notes or the straight eighths. And... I'm not sure if Ringo, because Ringo plays a great shuffle. He plays a great dotted eighth feel on the hi-hat. Uh, you can't really, I can't make it out distinctly in the track, but the tambourine is straight eighth notes with two and four backbeat. And he was really a master at 
using manipulating his hi-hat to open and close to get the wash sound sometimes, I think, so there, it wasn't distinctive dotted eights or straight eights, but the tambourine in this one, and rockabilly is so dotted eighth note, people don't know, it's like a shuffle, it's, it's like the swing, jazz kind of feel that most bands and drummers were playing at this time. So what's the dotted eight note? Like, can, what does it sound like roughly? I know you don't have your drum kit here, unfortunately, but... Well, no, but it's, it's based on a triplet. And if you take out the second beat of the trip, well, you get a... And take it out, you get... Okay. That's the dotted eighth feel. And straight eights at the same speed is... And they're quite different, but you hear at this time with all the rockabilly stuff going on, um, records that were being made in Memphis and Nashville and all over the U.S., where people were transitioning and combining dotted eighth and straight eighth. And you'd have, I'll talk a little bit later about Earl Palmer, great, great session drummer in the States, talking about working with Little Richard at Fats Domino and how he was discovering how music was changing and combining the with, with that. And that's what drummers play on a hi-hat. So, cool. Okay, there, there's your music lesson. No, I, I love it. I, I love it. Uh, so we'll go on to the next cut. Well, so, hang on. Oh, Sorry. Oh, you got something else? Well, I do. The, I think it was really interesting in the bridges where it was, um, I'll show you what your loving man can do, where Paul, where you really hear the bass prominent, and he plays that kind of broken walking bass. It's almost like a bass solo. And the sound of Paul and his Hofner bass, so distinctive, and that sound and that kind of style comes back many years later in a song like Rain, where the where you hear you really do hear the bass, yes. and he was more or less featured for those two sections of the. I know. Of the I'll tell you what you're loving. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can hear it. I'll show you what you're loving, man. During that section, the boom, 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 boom. Right. Anyway, so okay. That's cool. You're hosting the next show. <laughs> <laughs> Track two on side one. Things we said today. It was uh, released on the A Hard Day's Night album and was also the B-side of the A Hard Day's Night single. You say you will love me If I have to go You'll be thinking of me Somehow I will know Love this song. Love this record. Uh, right off the hop, starts off with very powerful, I think it's it has to be John playing the rhythm acoustic and playing the, I'll just digress for a second. I did a couple of albums with a very talented singer-songwriter back in the 70s named Ian Thomas. We did Painted Ladies. We went over to England, did Trident and played and did... Um, Long, long way, okay? And anyway, I remember during recording one of those songs saying to Ian, I wasn't sure if I should do a drum fill at a certain spot 
or just lay out. And I asked Ian, and, he, and Ian said, give me a pachyderm. And I said, a what? He said, a pachyderm. And I said, what's a pachyderm? He went like, pachyderm, pachyderm, that rhythm of like two snares and maybe a floor tom, pachyderm. Anyway, J John plays the pachyderms at the top of this, da-da-dum, da-da-dum, pachyderm, um, which I think sets the, sets the song up, and then they go into the kind of the minor melancholy, sad feeling of the verse. I think it's a great setup. It was uh, written by Paul McCartney primarily in May of 1964 on board a yacht called Happy Days. Uh, he was on holidays in the Virgin Islands with his then-girlfriend Jane Asher, plus Ringo and, and his wife. And Paul's recollections are thus. I remember writing things we said today in one of the cabins below deck one afternoon on my acoustic. Uh, I got away from the main party, but it was a bit queasy downstairs. You could smell the oil and the boat was rocking a bit. And I'm not the best sailor in the world. But anyways, I wrote a little bit of it downstairs and then the rest of it on the back deck where you couldn't smell the engine. I don't know why the engine was on, I suppose, because we were moving. Uh, but that's his recollection of writing the song. And uh, if you want to talk musically... I mean, it's it, Sunny Origins, where it was written, they were on holidays, but it's rooted in an A minor and only strays into a major key for the brief middle section. So it, it makes it sound a bit melancholy. A lot melancholy, which I love. That It sets a tone for me and reminded me very much of, a, of another song that it took me a long time to put my finger on, but... Um, a group from San Francisco, a few months later, had a record called Laugh Laugh that was produced by Sly of Sly and the Family Stone. But it, the verse of that is very much minor. It's that melancholy, sad kind of a feeling in the verse. And then they, you know, you go into more of a major for them in the chorus and for the Beatles in the, in the middle eights. And Ringo, Ringo, I mean, not only does the major chord come in for the bridges, which gives it kind of a lift, but Ringo comes in with a really hard straight eights waggle and a very distinctive two and four on the tambourine, which gives it, for me, gives, gives that section of the song a real lift. So the part, me, I'm just a lucky yeah. guy. Clang, yeah, yeah, clang, yeah, yeah. clang. And he only plays that in the bridges the middle eights. And for me, the combination of the chord change and the tambourine really lift the tune. Now, I I love, I like the song like you, but have you heard the version? Remember there was an album that came out, it was back in the 70s, the Beatles Live at the Hollywood Bowl. Yes, I remember that. And there's a version of it on there. And that's the one I love. Beca really? Because when they kick into the me, I'm just, yes. uh, the crowd just goes nuts. And it's, I mean, the closest I'll ever come to being at a Beatles concert. Is my favorite version of the song, but uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a great song and uh, a fade ending, which they didn't do a lot of fade endings. Yes, that's right. Being that playing all those years in Hamburg and at the Cavern Club and being a bar band, 
they had a lot of like crummy bar band endings, which ended up on the records. They, you know, the kind where, what do we do for an ending? Well, we just stop. You know, those kind, those kind. Of, but this was uh, this was a fade, and um, yeah, economical. Uh, and John ends up playing the pachyderm acoustic guitar on the fade going out, and I think Ringo ends up with, with a. Yeah, he and here's a, a Ringoism. This Ringo was so good. I mean, at basically being in a bar band, he wasn't a studio drummer, but he already just by this kind of a thing was showing his awareness of making records. You can hear in the fade that he plays an accent on two on the second beat on the fade going out but he doesn't do it in the first bar. And I don't think it's a mistake. I think that's a kind of a Ringo just making a subtle, subtle, subtle change that makes things sound a little bit different and interesting. I think he did that on purpose. We've talked about him before, but genius drummer. Genius, absolutely. Love Ringo. Uh, And still, still belting it out. He... We we were talking earlier about uh, I on vi- on uh, YouTube. We both saw the Joe Walsh playing. I think it was Funk Forty Nine with Russ Kunkel also playing drums and Lee Sklar on bass. Ringo's just kicking it. He's just kicking it. And this was from this year. Yeah, yeah. No, he's still he's still got it, man. He's still got he's it. Man. My two favorite drummers still got uh, it. You're, you're still cooking too. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so it, we've talked about the sequencing in these albums. Here's I think was good sequencing. We come out of a, a, a pretty good track. You're tapping your feet with things we said today, and then that fades out, and then it's boom. What do you remember about the beginning is the snare shot on four. I think it's on four, one, two, three, no, two. It's on the second beat of the bar. And that's the first thing you hear on this record. And again, I don't know if that's George Martin or Ringo or McCartney. I don't know whose idea that would have been. But to me, it's kind of a Ringo thing, which again, he's really beginning to be more of a session drummer than just a, a bar band drummer. And they are, they're two separate things. This is an awareness of making a record. And that really, I mean, that sets up the record. It repeats, he does it again two or three times in the record where they do the break and there's just the snare shot. Works well on the sequencing on this album, but worked better on the sequencing of the album it was originally on, which was the British soundtrack for A Hard Day's Night, first cut on side two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So great, great side opener, right? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Um, it, It was incomplete when first brought into Abbey Road Studios on Tuesday, the 2nd of June, 1964, Paul McCartney had suggested an idea for the middle eight section based solely on chords, which was recorded with the intention of adding lyrics later. But by the time it was needed to be mixed, uh, the middle eight was still without words. And that's how it appears on the LP. McCartney sings uh, the second anytime at all in each chorus because Lennon couldn't reach the notes. So he had to help him out there um 
and then it reprises a George Martin trick from A Hard Day's Night by using a piano solo echoed lightly note for note on the guitar by George. So there's, you know, there's how they filled it out there. And I love, I mean, it does, it is a piano. It does become like a de facto piano solo, but also the guitars playing. I only remember one other time where uh, hearing a rhythm guitar solo, and that was in a record by Crazy Elephant called Gimme Gimme Good Lovin'. And it's funny because they copy the same time thing, the quarter note triplets that you hear in this, that, you know, songs going along and, and the quarter note triplets are... Right? Like that. And Crazy Elephant does the same thing. And, of course, you hear that in The Doors, uh, Love Me Two Times, that, oh, that yes. distinctive... And you hear that in this, and uh, it ends up being great, I think. Um, As a note of trivia, uh, Lennon's handwritten lyrics for the song were sold at auction for 6,000 pounds in uh, April of 1988. So 1988, long time ago, because that that seems exceptionally low to me. Yeah, 6,000, I mean, not quite, but I I could almost... I could almost ponder spending that. <laughs> Somebody's making money on that right yeah. now. Yeah. Now, uh, this track, it would seem, was largely com- completed in the studio. You know, McCartney brought it in sort of half-finished, and, you, you know, you work with uh, one of the great songwriters in the, the history of, of modern music, um, and they're going to be able to work it out, right? McCartney comes in, and he's got the band helping out. You work with one of the greatest songwriters in the history of Canadian music, and I'm wondering, does Gordon Lightfoot ever bring something into the studio half finished? Because you've done a ton of albums with him, and you guys kind of help him finish it. Well, one that immediately comes to mind is the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> that one, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, he has. Um, I know Terry had written a couple of uh, rhythm guitar things along with Gordon, not so much in the studio, but maybe in the rehearsals for going into the studio. And Gord is open to, you know, he's very much open to input from all the guys on how we can make the arrangement different or that kind of a thing. So, yeah, no, he's he's open. Yeah, I, I didn't know, because um, I've talked to you before off-air about, uh, uh, you know, I think he's just such a brilliant songwriter, but the, my read on the guy, uh, correctly or not, is that, you know, he goes to work. You know, I got to write five songs. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write five songs. That's my job today or a song, whatever it is. And that's, you know, as opposed to you hear like, oh, the muse hit me. And we're like, he's, and I've heard him in interviews. You know, I'll go in. And uh, he was commissioned to write uh, Railroad Trilogy song. You know, write this for CBC for a special. Okay, I did it. So my long, my long question being, so I didn't, I wasn't sure whether or not a guy who approaches songwriting like that would come in when he was going to make an album and go, the song's done, here's how it goes, and, you know, because he's he's so thorough. Uh, and, I, and I didn't know whether that was the way he did it or whether he'd come in and say, guys, I kind of got an idea for a song and maybe, you know, what do you think? Or Yeah, no, you were right in the, your former... Um idea is that he would 
especially back in the old days because he doesn't drink anymore, but back in the days where he had to write an album, he would go to work in the morning as a songwriter at his desk with cigarettes in one hand and an Irish coffee in the other hand and music paper in front of him. And he would, he was not other than Carefree Highway. I haven't heard of him thinking of something outside of his work area as far as song ideas. He would go to work and he would go, I don't know if it was five days or seven days a week, he would work at his desk writing songs. And the songs wouldn't really change in the studio. The arrangements would. Okay. Uh, next cut on this album, When I Get Home. Uh, originally on A Hard Day's Night, fourth cut on side two. A uh, little bit of a Shirelles influence on this one. Whoa, whoa. This could have been the number one cut on the album because of the, uh, the harmonies in the beginning. They just hit you right between the eyes. I think they had maybe were delving into a little bit of falsetto harmony. And they're so strong, just so strong. And the whoa, whoa, I, that, it's just so strong. And the singing in this record, um, just amazing. I've, it tends to meander a little bit in the middle for me. The middle eight becomes a middle 16, and it just kind of, I don't know, meanders, wanders around just a little bit. I hate to criticize Lennon and McCartney, but I, not, not my favorite section uh, in the album, but, I mean, just great stuff. And, oh, Ringo and the Boys... The accents, the member of the record Shotgun, Junior Walker, and the All-Stars, that they use that rhythm throughout the song, and they, they kind of double it or do it in unison as a band, which very effective. In my notes, I've got, you're right, uh, in this period, the Beatles, they like that let vocal leap into the falsetto, uh, like to do that, and uh, unusual chord progression, so it goes from major to minor keys and back, which kind of bucked the genre at the time. Lennon loved that type of writing, though. He loved, as uh, as he put it, uh, you know, black girl groups. The Beatles did a lot of covers of, you know, the Shirelles, the Donnays, um, the Crystals. Like, a lo- they loved that. They loved that style of music. Um, there's a funny story that I got out of Mark Lewison's The Complete Beatles Recording Sessions. Um, Ken Scott, who went on to be a great producer in his own right, but he was a 17-year-old tape-op. He was starting his music career, and he was working on this album as a tape-op. And back in those days, uh, they were big tape machines, and there was no room for them in the control room. They were back in a, in a separate part of the studio. So you would only be able to get talked to if you were a tape-op by the producer on an intercom from the the student from the uh, from the control room so here's the quote from the book um i'm just trying to find where i can jump in on this particular evening this is ken scott talking the beatles were playing back their latest recordings to a few friends who had come in for a visit george martin was giving me directions over the talk back and at one point i heard him say home 
So I put the tapes away, switched off the power, put my coat on, <laughs> left the room. And as I was walking along the corridor, I saw George Martin standing in the doorway and he said, well, is the tape lined up yet? I'm sorry, I said. Is the tape of When I Get Home ready for you to play back yet? Uh, hang on, George. I'll just check and see. <laughs> I ran up that corridor, flicked all the switches back on, and put the tape back on as fast as lightning, acting as nonchalantly as I could as if nothing wrong had happened. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, and Ken Scott, yeah, went on to be a, a, a great producer, but that was his start. Yeah, there you go. And a little bit kid. of angst in the studio <laughs> for a young kid. I'm really noticing in this album, uh, there's a couple of things. It, there's a lot of pushes in the album, which, you know, anticipated notes, anticipated beats that the band hits. This is a very pushy album, and Ringo is so right on with all the pushes. Da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, those are pushes, okay? Uh, another thing, he's really becoming, I can hear him becoming a studio drummer, because in... Another one of the things he does in the in in the body of the song, he has the washy hi hat, the very splashy washy hi hat. Except that when it comes to the bridge, he closes it up, he dries it up, which gives that that section a whole different feel, a different mood. And then when it comes back to the body of the song, he goes back to the washy hi hat. Now that's not something that bar bands you know, would even think about. But this, again, I think this is Ringo, not so much George Martin. This is Ringo playing the drums, using his ears, uh, using his feel, and discovering what makes records, upping the level of a song, making making the record better. Barry, was his use of the hi-hat to sort of get that wash thing going, as you call it, was that really unique at the time? Like, would most guys have used one of the one of the different symbols? There was it ride or crash ride. They, so yep. they would they, they'd use the ride instead sure. of uh, was so was. I mean, a lot of guys do that now, but was Ringo unique at the time? I think he his use of the hi hat was a little bit unique, in that you can really hear it in the records where especially where they take a break, where there's a break in the music. You can hear the wash going along, and then when it hits the break, it's clean. You can't really do that with a ride cymbal unless you catch it with your other hand. You can't make it stop from ringing. And in the Beatle records, they don't ring through the breaks. So it's his use of keeping the two hi-hat cymbals uh, separated, so you get that wash of the two cymbals hitting each other, and then you can close it with your foot. So you get that definite break in in the sound, in the music. And he, again, is one of the transition drummers going from jazz dotted eighth feel to straight eights, and so many guys were playing jazz big band kind of things where it was the on the hi-hat. And now Ringo is playing rock music on the hi-hat and making it work. Do you do you do that in a lot of your playing, have done, the, the Ringo hi-hat wash? Not a whole, no, I have to admit, not a lot. Uh, he was, it's kind of unique to him, his use of that, of that hi-hat. Uh, I've always tended more towards the dry, 
definite hi-hat. But I don't play a lot of rockabilly. I didn't play a lot of rockabilly, you know, crossover kind of kind of records. I haven't done a lot of that. But maybe if I had, I might have copied Ringo a little bit. So we move on to Slow Down, which is the second last track on side one. Uh, first appeared on the UK, again going back to the LP, on the UK Long Tall Sally EP. Uh, cover version of a Larry Williams song from 1958 was originally a B-side to his hit single, which the Beatles also covered, Dizzy Miss Lizzie. What do you think of this one? Well, come on, pretty baby, won't you walk with me? Come on, pretty baby, won't you talk with me? Come on, pretty baby, give me one more chance. Try to save uh, I I found it very interesting in researching the track. It's a uh, it's slower than the Larry Williams version, which I think was smart. They did make some changes in it. Uh, Ringo is very respectful of the drummer who played on that, a guy named Earl Palmer, whose name is going to come up more in this interview. I hope because Earl. Palmer was not only the first drummer in the Wrecking Crew in L.A., he preceded Hal Blaine. He played, this is a guy who played with Fats Domino. Uh, We may get into this later, but he played with Fats Domino in a record in 1949 where he started realizing that two and four on the snare drum was important and was right for the feel of this Fats Domino record that he was recording. And again, talking about transition music and transition drummers, a lot of guys, the accent wasn't on two and four so much other than, and Earl Palmer talks about, that he realized that he was playing Dixieland and jazz in New Orleans. He's a New Orleans guy. And he said that in Dixieland, you only really accented the two and four on the out choruses. And what he calls an afterbeat, not the backbeat that we call it, he called it an afterbeat. He said it just it was just felt like the right thing to play on this Fats Domino record called The Fat Man. And this may have been one of the first two and four afterbeat, backbeat records, and that's nineteen forty nine. But Earl went on Earl went on and played uh, Dizzy Miss Lizzie. He played Tutti Frutti with he on the Little Richard record. Oh yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you and he even talks about his transition in the Tutti Frutti record. He said that when he listens to it now, he played a shuffle against Little Richard's straight eights on the piano. And uh, it just was it's just really interesting hearing and of course Ringo would hear these records. And Ringo would listen and learn and, and transition from some of the fields he was used to playing, listening to some of these guys like Earl Palmer, some of the records that were coming out of the U.S. Uh, this track, it was a workmanlike track for the Beatles. They needed, they needed stuff to put out at the time. Uh, it was taped pretty swiftly, uh, six takes in an afternoon of June 1st, 1964. Rhythm track, Take three, that's the one they, they overdubbed the, the Lennon double track vocals on two. And then George Martin added a piano part three days later. George Martin they added a lot of piano stuff in the early days, especially. Uh, and then if you're being, this is uh, 
reading from uh, Mark Lewison's book, none of the performers appear to have taken it too seriously. There's some vocal fluffs, uh, most noticeably during the line, but now you've got a boyfriend down the street um, and sort of a, you know, workmanlike guitar solo. It was something they had to get done. Uh, workmanlike, I think, is a flattering way of talking. <laughs> and I read different, there's some different opinions. Some people love that guitar solo. They just think it's the greatest. And then I've spoken to some guitar player friends of mine who think it's just sloppy. Yeah. It's just out of time, not very well thought out, just kind of thrown together. Those are the, the words that I saw mostly. <laughs> sloppy, uh, workmanlike being kind. Now, there you the, go. the last two tracks, before we come to the last one, which is another cover, but the last couple of tracks, uh, I think aptly titled for uh, Your Life Still, um, When I Get Home and Slow Down, uh, because <laughs> you played thousands of gigs on the road with Gordon Lightfoot, still do. Uh, as as a, a fellow traveler, I used to travel a lot in my old line of work, but what has changed the most over the years for you with the touring? What is so different now than from what it was like when you started? Well, let me think. Some of the venues have changed. I mean, back in the 70s, we would play, I think we played six nights at the Universal Amphitheater that holds four or 5,000 people. So we're not doing that anymore. We're playing some smaller venues, which, which are, I enjoy them. And we're playing more rock casinos now, which we didn't do back then. We did play at the uh, MGM Grand Hotel back in, back in the late 70s, but we're doing more rock casinos, which to me is fun. I really like those. It's surreal to me still that I'm on stage with Gordon Lightfoot and you see the, the faces in the crowd where we can see faces in the crowd and people singing along, they know the lyrics or somebody doing an air drum solo um, that whole thing. You told a great story in the last podcast about, um, you know, the, the crowd clapping along and, maybe, <laughs> and and his line was, leave the driving to us. Correct. <laughs> the auctioneer. <laughs> yeah. We used to play the, that great Leroy Van Dyke song that Gord recorded, actually. Um, and the crowd would, you know, mm, 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 and, and Gord would shake his head and say, please leave the driving to us. <laughs> uh, all right, last cut on side one. Uh, another cover. Uh, we're just coming out of a cover, Slow Down. Uh, cover of a Carl Perkins hit from 1956 and uh, Matchbox. <laughs> Great rockabilly track, um, a cover of the Carl Perkins record that was done in Memphis. Sam Phillips produced it. Jerry Lee Lewis was the piano player on that record. Um, this is Ringo playing great rockabilly. He plays a great shuffle, a great rockabilly. Uh, again, the washy high hi hat. And it's a Ringo song. Ringo, I know originally Pete Best sang this in the group. 
And so this kind of became the drummer song, I guess. Ringo ended up singing it live and on the record and does a, you know, he sounds very Ringo-ish on, on the vocals. Um, good track, good up-tempo track and yeah. It was supposed to be, uh, originally it was going to be Ringo's, because he usually got a, a song on every album. It was going to be his song on the Hard Day's Night album, but then they had so much good material, so it got dusted for the Hard Day's Night album, and it showed up on an EP. The Long Tall Sally EP is where it ended up. Uh, one little bit of trivia associated with this, so it's, it's based on Matchbox Blues, 12-bar blues recorded by Blind Lemon Jefferson in 1927, then re-emerged pardon me, reimagined by Perkins. It was first recorded at Sun Records in December of 1956. Now, the reason that's historically significant is because on that day, a milestone in rock and roll history took place because later that day, Elvis, the Elvis, Johnny Cash, and Lewis were all in the Sun studio at the same time with Sam Phillips with Carl Perkins and his band. So this was this little impromptu group that got put together for this jam session and it became known as the Million Dollar Quartet. That's history right there. Right there. No yep. kidding. Yep. Legends <laughs> all in there and that's sort of a, a, a loose connection uh, to this song. Now, before we tuck into side number two, uh, I know you've worked. I've talked about what I used to do. I've, I was a sportscaster in my, my former life. Uh, you've worked on my side of the microphone a few times, appearing on some sports roundtable shows. I know you're a huge sports fan as we've become friends over the years and you've been on chat shows. But the thing that jumped out at me when I was reading about you was you did color commentary on a radio broadcast of a double-A baseball game. So is that your, we all have these in, in our minds, is that your, if I could have done something else career, is that you, sportscaster? Definitely not. No? No. I, I'm a huge, as you were kind enough to point out, I'm a huge sports fan. I still play sports, and I love watching sports. I just feel it's such a privilege I, I've been such an admirer of gentlemen such as yourself who do that. And just to meet gentlemen such as yourself is a thrill for me. You guys were, you know, I, I listened to you tell me what's going on in a hockey game. And just to meet you and then actually participate in a broadcast, which I have done a few times with my friend Joe Bowen down at down at what was the gardens and um, I, I've had a couple of opportunities to join people on the air and yeah in Akron Ohio earlier this year a friend of mine works for the Erie Seawolves and I asked him I'm a big minor league baseball fan and I actually looked at our schedules I was going to have a night off the same night that the Seawolves were in town playing the Akron Rubber Duckies, right? <laughs> it's got to be double-A ball. <laughs> oh, absolutely. The, the, the Akron Rubble Duckies. Anyway, they're the uh, Cleveland Guardians. Cleveland Guardians double-A affiliate. So my buddy, Greg uh, Gania, who works for the Seawolves, I emailed him and said, can I get some tickets for myself and the guys in the band? He said, yeah, no problem. Come on down. And then a few minutes later, I got an email saying, 
would you like to do the broadcast with me? He knows I'm a baseball fan, and we've talked baseball, so he knows I know something about the game. Anyway, he said, yeah, you can come in and do an inning or two. And then he wrote back and said, why don't you do the whole game with me? And I said, great. So I ended up being the radio color analyst for a double-A baseball game in Akron, Ohio. How'd you do? How was it? I I think I was just above awful, probably. <laughs> it, you know, it's different. It's when when it's on radio. Like I'm so used to watching a game on TV, and you get a replay or you get a close up of you know a guy throwing a fastball or a curveball. When you're up in the press box, the pitch comes in. It's like, what did he throw? I don't know. And and you have no replay to go with. And also the other thing that was interesting was that they started using the pitch clock in minor league baseball. So the the plays were happening like this. And when you would have a chance to talk, it was over. And you would think of something interesting to say, and it was too late. So it was a really interesting experience. He said that uh, he liked what I did because I knew when not to talk. Um, and would I do it again? Absolutely. And was it a blast? It was a blast. Would I like to do it as a career? Uh, probably not, Paul. Uh, fair enough. Uh, it is a pretty good job, I have to admit. Although maybe not quite as good as being a drummer in a band, but there you go. Uh, before we get to side two of the record, I would like to ask you, dear listener, uh, to please consider making a donation to support keeping this show commercial free. Uh, either that, or feel free to come forward and sponsor the show. Uh, either would work. <laughs> Any donation, much appreciated, and your donation goes towards offsetting my costs of doing the show, uh, web hosting, advertising, some equipment costs. Uh, this is the third series of The Walrus Was Paul, and as I've said before, it's a labor of love for me. I really enjoy doing it. I'm glad you enjoy listening to it. But if you enjoy the show, please consider a donation to support it. Maybe just a couple of dollars per episode. It's not really that much. Uh, just click on the donate button on the website if you'd like to donate. If you can afford it, please do consider it. And along those lines, a big shout out to uh, John Morrison, uh, an old friend and a friend of the show who made a generous donation recently, as well as a lovely woman who was donated before but wants to remain anonymous. So to John and to Mystery Woman, uh, thank you very much for your donations. And again, if you'd like to help out with the donation, uh, I'll give you a shout out as well, or not. If you want to remain anonymous, just let me know. Just visit Visit the website romicast.com. Also, if you're enjoying this episode, you might also enjoy Series 2, Episodes 17 and 18, where today's guest, Barry, uh, talks about the 1963 Beatles album with the Beatles. So let's get back to uh, something new and a great track from the uh, Hard Day's Night movie soundtrack, Tell Me Why. song, great, strong, strong harmonies. Uh, Ringo opens it with um, some great triplets and great triplets, and they go into a bunch of pushes. Again, I mentioned this is a very pushy 
album in that there there are a lot of pushes that da 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 bum bum those are those are what we call pushes and Ringo and the band I mean they're so tight as a band from all those years of playing these kind of things they're so tight on those pushes uh, Ringo plays the washi hi hat shuffle on this which he does so well. Um, and the, the thing that really stood out to me was the, the, the strong harmonies just hit you in the face. Uh, unusually in that harmony, right? It's the great three-part Beatle harmony, John, Paul, and George. But Paul sings the lower harmony to John's lead during the chorus. And it was almost always Paul who sang the high harmony. Uh, so we didn't there. Uh, Lennon's recollection, he says, they needed another upbeat song for the movie and I just knocked it off. Um, and again, he, he loves, it was like a black uh, New York girl group song is, is, what, he, is what he said. Uh, really up-tempo. And again, I can't imagine many of you listening haven't seen the movie, but if you haven't, this is the great scene which they filmed at the Scala Theater in London in March of 1964. It's sort of the concert scene and, and they do a really great job of this. Uh, and the version on the film, unusually, has a uh, different vocal than the version that went out on the record. Um, don't know why. You really notice it on the, if you only listen to my please, um, which is, you know, that great little Beatle please and please. Sounds the same, different word. They love to do that kind of thing. John plays a wonderful rhythm, very airy guitar which to me was a little reminiscent of All My Lovin'. Mm, I hear that, yeah. That, that great, you know, that very accurate, very beautiful rhythm guitar. There's a little bit of that in this, which I really appreciated. And also, this is another song. This album is so pushy. The ending of this song, and there was one other, I can't remember, uh, might have been When I Get Home, that they end on one. They end where it isn't a push. And the song has so many pushes in it that I could definitely see there being a, a group meeting or a meeting with, with George Martin and saying, well, we have to push the ending. No, we don't. There's too many pushes already. Well, that's why we need to... I, bands have broken up over, <laughs> over arguments like this, whether to push the last note or have it right on the beat. They, they with all the pushes throughout the record, they, they end this one right on the one. It's a great ending. A great dun, ending. Dun, yeah. Dun, 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 yeah. No, not dun, 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 right? Yeah. It isn't pushed, which interesting. Tell me why you cry and why you lie to me. Next track, you referred to it already, second cut on side two, uh, And I Love Her, which yeah. you're smiling already. Yeah, that's my favorite track for sure. I give her all my love, that's all I do. And if you saw my love, you'd love her too. I love her. Just everything about this track, uh, Paul's vocal, 
um, the double track vocal is there's something about that. And I know, and again, here's Ringo, and I'm pretty sure this was Ringo. They started with him on the drum kit when they started rehearsing the song. And then it was either Ringo or, or may have been Paul, may have been George Martin, but decided to go with claves and bongo instead of the drum kit, which is perfect. It's just perfect. The bongo part, just straight eighth notes and just simple, simple, and it works so well. And another little Ringo thing, the clave part. In the very first verse, it's two, three, four, clank, 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 clank. And in, and from the second verse on, it's clank, 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 clank. He adds the extra note at the end, which again, nobody would ever in a million years notice. But subconsciously, you see, it's a little bit different and it's very tasteful. But that's, you see, here's Ringo becoming a session drummer making records, taking them from being good to great. This, if, if you've read Paul McCartney's book, The Lyrics, he strongly associates the song with living with the Ashers on Wimple Street in uh, Marylebone. The Ashers being the family of Jane Asher, who was his uh, girlfriend at the time. And the other strong associations for McCartney with this song involve the two Georges. And here's a great story that he tells. We were about to record it, says McCartney. And George Martin said, I think it will be good with an introduction. And I swear, right there and then, George Harrison went, well, how about this? And he played the opening riff, which is such a hook, the song is nothing without it. Another thing worth noting, says McCartney, is that George Martin was inspired to add a chord modulation in the solo of the song, a key change that he knew would be musically satisfying. We shifted the chord progression to start with a G minor instead of an F sharp major, so up a semitone. George Harrison with the intro and George Martin with the key change into the solo gave it a bit more musical strength. Talk about teamwork. Uh, teamwork, genius, and that, I mean, the guitar riff that George came up with is so great. And the solo that he plays, it could be, I swear to God, it could have been out of Mel Bay's book number one. It's so simple. It is so simple, but so perfect on that nylon string classical guitar that he plays it on. It just, it's, it's brilliant in its simplicity. Again, McCartney, who'd like to do this, the title of the song is only sung twice, right? So you didn't go to Crazy. town on it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, end of the second and fourth verses. And another song where he did that off the top of my head, uh, Here, There, and Everywhere. Uh, it's only sung once, huh. right at the end of the song. Great. Uh, that's interesting. Oh, what a writer. Yeah, what, really. What, what a writer. Now, these guys as a band, in terms of helping one another out, I talked about this before. I mean, you have such great musicians, and Mick Jagger called them the, you know, the, the four-headed monster, right? Uh, one body with the four heads on there, and that body was the Beatles. So the band 
that you have played with for so many years, the Gordon Lightfoot Band. Long time, many shows. How locked in are you guys? Like, do you even, is it just a nod or a wink or like, do you even have to talk to one another? You I mean, you must, you must know the stuff backwards, forwards, sideways and be so tight. Well, we do until Gord changes something where he decides he's going to leave a verse out of a song or end a song early. or, And we're one of the only bands I know of. We don't have a set list. When we hit the stage, I'm not saying we have no idea what we're going to play, but we don't know. There, there are times, well, every night we stand at the side of the stage before we go on, and it's usually Carter, our lead guitar player, who will say, Gord, what do we got? And then Gord will list off the songs that we're going to start with. And then he said, maybe not. Just wing it. We will go on stage. We don't even know what the first song is going to be, Paul. So it's, it adds to the excitement. And, um, yeah, it's, it's that million-dollar name, that tune. Gord will just start. He won't even say what song he's going to play. He'll just start playing. But that is a testament to you, your professionalism, like as I would, my question, right? I mean, a tight band. We are. We have played these songs once or twice. There's no doubt. Uh, it was interesting when we lost Terry. We lost Terry Clements, wonderful guitar player, 10 or 11 years ago, and Carter came in, and we had had some rehearsals. But again, with Gord not having a set list and Gord not announcing what song it would be, Carter would turn to me, and I had hand signals, much like a third bass coach, and I would signal to him, you know, what song was coming up. It would be like for Hangdog Hotel Room or Carefree Highway. I'm sorry, I'm playing. I don't know which camera I should play to here, but hand signals for Carter for the first few years so he would know what song was, was coming up. Now, I don't want you to tell tales out of school because that's not your style, but Carter Lancaster is who we're talking about. And if you've ever seen the Gordon Lightfoot man play in person, I mean, the whole band is amazing. Uh, but Carter is, I mean, such a great guitar player. Uh, in the early, when he came on, you know, in after Terry Clemens had passed away, was there ever a time at the beginning where he's, oh, change the solo a little bit or I'll wing this or I'll add something or did he come in and fall into line right away with nope solo's the solo this is how it goes because again Gord strikes me as a guy who's well no that's that's the solo that's what are you doing <laughs> uh you were again remember you're talking about the Gordon Lightfoot band and yeah there's there's just not a lot of improv there's not a lot of yeah this is the way it is we do it this way do it this way. And, I mean, Gord's open to suggestions for sure, but usually Gord has a pretty good idea of what he wants to hear, how it should be, and um, that's an interesting idea you have, but we're going to do it this way. Yeah. <laughs> Just for fun one night, break into a drum solo. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> no, no, I can't imagine, to be the, honest. The, the, the Ringo Abbey Road, uh, the end. 
<laughs> that would be my last night of playing with Gordon Lightfoot. But what a way to go. Out. What a way to go. <laughs> All right. Uh, back to the album. And uh, we come out of just a lovely, lovely track. And I love her. Barry's favorite uh, on the album. How about I'm Happy Just to Dance with You? Where does that rate in your in your listing of this album? Uh, it's, again, it's just, it's so, there is such subtle differences about the writing of the song, the arrangement of the song. This is the George song. I don't know if that was um, Richard Lester wanting to have George in the movie, that he had to have a song, or the Beatles decided that George was going to have a song. But anyway, it's the George song. Before this dance is through, I think I love you too. I'm so happy when you dance with me. I don't want to kiss or hold your hand If it's only try and understand There is really nothing else I'd rather do Cause I'm happy just to dance with you um, It opens apparently with the last four bars of the bridge, which is really unusual. And again, there's pushes in here that the whole band, including Ringo, um, handles very well. There's an interesting rhythm thing, uh, a recurring rhythm part that almost sounds like a clave, but it also sounds like it could be a muted guitar thing that maybe George or John is playing that dun, 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 that kind of thing, which, which is a big part of the rhythm, I think. Uh, I, I, I think it's great. I think George does a great job on it. Um, yeah. It was, to your point, uh, it was specifically written for George by Lennon and McCartney, so he would have a spot in in the movie A Hard Day's Night. Uh, McCartney's quote is, We wrote I'm Happy Just to Dance with You for George in the film. It was a bit of a formula song. We knew that in E, if you went to an A-flat minor, you could always make a song with those chords. That change pretty much always excited you. This is one of these. Certainly, Do You Want to Know a Secret was as well. This one, uh, a straight co-write for George by John and I. That's McCartney's recollection. So again, workmanlike. You know, they needed a song for George. Workmanlike and another great, I think, John rhythm part. You hear that airy, sort of reminiscent of All My Love and Again. That's that kind of airy triplet kind of a feel that John plays so well. He, especially in the early days, Barry, I think his not by music people like you but his his rhythm guitar playing sometimes gets overlooked like if you listen to some of the year, and a lot of it is the way it was mixed and, and put out, but his rhythm guitar just it's just drives the band. Oh, like it's it, killer. Yeah. And until we, we did the last time I did with the Beatles with you and including this album, analyzing them, I never gave John that much credit as a guitar player, to be honest. Then you start listening. You listen to All My Lovin'. Man, oh man, that is a great... And I've spoken to guitar player friends of mine who know a lot more about guitar than I do, and they agree. It's great. It's great playing. Well, and this is just uh, just jumped into my head. Uh Gordon Lightfoot has, to me, the finest film performance I've ever seen of Gordon Lightfoot was a special he did for the BBC. 
and it, you can find it on YouTube. Take a look if you're a Gordon Lightfoot fan. It's just, I mean, it's just a brilliant performance. He was in his 1970s hippie glory, uh, you know, with the the uh, with the, the leather vest. I think that he wore on uh, on this cover of Sundown, and like that. That's the era, folks. But we've talked about this before. His guitar playing on there. Like, there was no drummer. Uh, not at all. And he, it was like John's rhythm guitar playing. It just drove the band. He was like a freight train. He just drove. And that was with Rick and Red. That uh, Rick came in after John Stockfish. But that version of the Lightfoot Trio, to me, was just so great. And, and you said it. There, there's Gord, you know, the engine of the band. And he, he really... He wasn't missing a drummer, really. He he carried all of that himself. Yeah, it was, it was great. Him on guitar, on acoustic guitar. You had the great Red Shea playing the lead parts. What a, a remarkable musician Red Shea was. Uh, and uh, and then it is Rick Haynes, Rick Haynes doing on the bass. On bass. Uh, a very young Rick Haynes. Whenever I see that, whenever. But if you look for it, folks, sorry to go go down that sidebar, but it is, if you love Gordon Lightfoot, uh, it is just a fantastic performance. It really is. I'm I'm sure maybe he's played better. He's had better shows. Um, You know, you would know better than anybody, but for the recorded shows that I've seen, recordings of his shows, it is just him at his pinnacle. Like, man. And I, to your point, when Carter first joined the band, I said, you have to listen to this BBC. Go on YouTube, listen to this BBC thing, and you're going to hear uh, not only Gord playing great rhythm guitar, but Red Shea, of course. Red Shea was just not only one of the best guitar players I ever played with, but one of the funniest men I had ever been around. You couldn't be around Red for more than a minute before you were just laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> and just, he, and it, he stopped, he just stopped touring. He'd had yep. enough? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's it. <laughs> oh, I, I get it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I get it. But off oh, what a guitar player, man. It was kind of like, do you remember Don Zimmer in baseball? Yep. And Don Zimmer became the first base coach of the Chicago Cubs. And then one day, somewhere around like the fifth inning, he just walked off the field. And that was it. It was, he just, he didn't, he was done with baseball. That was it. So it was kind of like red. Second last track on the album, uh, If I Fell, a lovely ballad uh, that was a co-write, probably a little more Lennon than McCartney, but, uh, and, and again, another nice moment in the movie. If I fell in love with you, would you promise to be true and help me? Understand, cause I've been in love before, and I found that love was more than just holding hands. If I give my heart to you, I must be sure from the very start that you would love me more than her. Probably my second favorite song on the record. You and love again, the softies, don't you? Oh, big time softie. And uh, good on John. I mean, there, there's some things, you know, you hear that great Scouse accent in their interviews, you hear them in the movies. But to me, 
you in the beginning of this record, you really hear the Scouse in John, which is so beatly. I think maybe because the vocal is so upfront, it isn't a rock tune that he usually sings in. I love that. And then I read somewhere where uh, John and Paul um, did the harmonies, Everly Brothers style, sharing a microphone. Yeah. And I, I, you can just picture, like when they were on stage and McCartney being left-handed and George and John being right-handed, when they would share a mic and both guitar necks would be facing the audience with the mic in between. Such a great visual on on this. And I, you can just visualize them. I don't know if they were, if it was an overdub, the harmonies probably was, but you can almost visualize that stage presence of the two of them doing the harmonies on this record. Um, great song, great record. Uh, McCartney talks about the beginning being a preamble, yeah, and that was kind of a recurring Beatles thing, that and, and so different. You you mentioned about and I love her, but they only mention and I love her twice in the song, and this part of the song only happens in the beginning. Um, just brilliant stuff. Well, they, I've talked about this before uh, on the, on the show, but they were. Lennon and McCartney were big fans of great songwriters. And the songwriting tradition, especially some of those Broadway songwriters, there was often, I mean, off the top of my head, there's a song called, uh, which you may or may not know, called I've Got a Crush on You. And the song starts off with, you know, of all the many millions of Annabelles and Williams. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, then, so they, and then all of a sudden, I've got, yeah. and it's like, there's the song starting. Right on. So they like, that's where they got that from. It was a so, Tin Pan Alley songwriting tradition. Uh, they used it in Here, There, and Everywhere to lead a better. Yes, and then then they start the song. Right? right, there's like and the same thing here. They do the same thing, and I, I just it's not many pop writers. I don't think were doing that at the time. Uh, no, I I agree. That's um, kudos for them for for mixing that into pop music for daring. To go that way with like kind of like Buddy Holly using strings, nobody does that. Well, we just did, right? And uh, also, Paul McCartney points this out. People tend to forget that John wrote some perfectly nice ballads. People tend to think of him as an acerbic wit and aggressive and abrasive, but he did have a very warm side to him, really. When he didn't, but he didn't like to show it too much in case uh, he got rejected. We wrote If I Fell together, but with the emphasis on John because he sang it. It was a nice harmony number, very much a ballad. And I think the salient point there is, you know, you try to put them into into boxes and, oh, well, you know, Paul was the soppy one and John was the... But John wrote his share of... Woman is another one that comes to mind that he wrote as a solo artist, uh, you know. Uh, so he had it in him too. And... and this is a beautiful example of that. Just great. And they were going back to uh, Until There Was You, where, where Paul sings and the birds soar, kind of making fun of being a little soft or a little sappy. And apparently they would introduce this song as If I Fell Over, kind of making fun of themselves for being so 
softer, sappy, I, I guess. I guess they were a little self-conscious. Yeah, but, but they even had, if you go back and even going back to the days when, if you look at set lists from back when they played uh, for hours and hours in Hamburg, they had they were playing Till There Was You yeah. back then. And they, there was these four leather-clad rockers yeah. getting drunk out of their minds and, and popping prellies, uh, uh, pep pills. And, and here they, this nice, soppy Broadway show ballad, you know, like it. So that was always a part of the Beatles. It was. And that's a credit to them listening, listening and learning. I think they were, they were fans of other people's music and they did listen. They did learn, they adapted, they transitioned and they introduced some things they were pioneers in many, many ways in pop music. One track left. Uh, before we get to that, it's it's kind of a novelty track. You know, uh, it's a German recording of "I Want to Hold Your Hand." But you wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the history of of drumming, yeah, and how that worked. So, f- fill me in. What what do you got in your page? Well, thank you. Um, it was really, really interesting to me in researching again, going back to an album that's 60 years old. Um, Going back and listening and researching the songs and finding out that, you know, that, oh, this was a a remake of Larry Williams' record and Earl Palmer played drums on it and Earl Palmer played with Little Richard. And I know that they were voracious, the Beatles, all of them, were voracious listeners to other people's 245s from Brian Epstein's NEMS record store that they would go in late at night and listen to records. Well, Ringo, I know, was listening, and he probably had no idea who some of the people, some of the drummers were that he was listening to. But right at this time, or maybe toward the late 50s, early 60s, people were making music, and it was transitioning into a different form of music, going again from the dotted eighth shuffle, swing feel into more of a straight eighth thing. People were introducing two and four backbeat more. And and just to credit some of those guys, like Earl Palmer from New Orleans played with Fats Domino. He played Tutti Frutti with Little Richard. Records like DJ Fontana with Elvis. You listen to the backbeats in Hound Dog, Jailhouse Rock. I mean, they're just pounding. And these are late 50s records. Um, Jerry Allison with Buddy Holly. Oh boy, that'll be the day. They had really strong, there was strong two and four happening then. And prior to that, there wasn't a lot of what Earl Palmer called afterbeats, what we now call backbeats, the two and four stuff. You had Fluke Holland and uh, Jim Van Eaton in Memphis working with Sam Phillips. And one of those gentlemen, I think it was Jim Van Eaton, played on that million-dollar quartet session. You had Benny Benjamin in Motown. Apparently, Barry Gordy had hired an A&R guy called Mickey Stevenson, and Mickey Stevenson said, we need to get a house band. We need to get a house band in here. And Barry Gordy said, yeah, go get me a house band. He went out to the jazz clubs, and he found Benny Benjamin on drums, uh, Jamie Jamerson on bass brought them in and they became the Funk Brothers. And then Earl Palmer, who had been working in New Orleans, uh, backing up Fats Domino and Little Richard, he moved to L.A. 
and started doing sessions in L.A. And he, I mean, talk about transition. He was doing records with Count Basie, Dizzy Gillespie, the Beach Boys, Jan and Dean. I mean, can you imagine going from a Dizzy Gillespie session to a Jan and Dean set? <laughs> Earl Palmer played on uh, the Righteous Brothers hits. Like, I mean, talk about going from a style of music to another style of music and going from swing and uh, shuffle feel and then adding strong two and four backbeats. Like, so these were people that Ringo was learning from. And I'll, I'll bet you any money if you asked him back then, he could name every record that he had listened to, but probably couldn't name one of these drummers by name. Session drummers were so anonymous back then. But these were the guys that were kind of along with Ringo, and Ringo popularized a lot of what these other guys had been doing. And Ringo was so so much in the forefront and so much part of this unbelievable new band that a lot of the stuff he was listening to and learning, uh, he was popularizing, which has become... The music that we all know and love. Yeah, to, to me, and you're you're the professional drummer, but Ringo's kind of, and some other guys in that era, but Ringo is, is who we're talking about. A lot of those old rock and roll guys had sort of big band jazz backgrounds, and, and you could hear it in their playing. Uh, and then Ringo to me was a bit of a transition between that type of drumming and then by the time we got to what I'll call hardcore rock and roll drumming Keith Moon uh, John Bonham you know those guys have virtually nothing in common with jazz drumming right, right? Ringo still had a he kind of had one foot stored, still back in that old world. Sure he did. Yeah. Um, and see, so he, that's another interesting place in history that he occupies uh, last track on the album um uh, apologies to any uh, native German speakers. Come uh, give me a hand. So, you know, I want to hold your hand. It was the way this happened is that back in the early days of the Beatles, uh, the German division of Parlophone said, uh, oh, we must have them singing in German. Uh, so if I didn't offend you with my German pronunciation, for sure I did there. <laughs> uh, and so, and they weren't keen on it, but during a residency in Paris, uh, the same one where they got the famous telegram that said they had a number one song in the United States, I want to hold your hand, it got number one, and they were about to go over there and tour. I digress. Uh, the, they had some studio time, and they went in and they rattled off some German versions of their their big hits. So they did She Loves You, and I Want to Hold Your Hand, and this just kind of got tacked on here at the end. To me, it doesn't fit with the album. It's kind of odd that it's even on the album. I'm not sure why it is, but and I'm sure you have, you'll be better at telling the background story about when they went to Paris to do the vocals, and George Martin was at the studio. Do you want to take over from there? Well, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, fa a funny little story. Is is they had 
they had studio time booked uh, January 29th, 1964 at EMI's Pathé Marconi Studios in Paris. They had what they thought was a day off. They were doing a 19-day series of shows at the Olympia Theater in Paris. Uh, And this recording session gets scheduled. The Beatles didn't want to attend and they didn't show up. Uh, So... (laughs) George Martin or maybe somebody for George Martin or maybe he called them on the phone basically went down and said just here was the power dynamic then said get your asses down here we have, I've been hanging around waiting for this and they came in and they uh, and they and they did it uh it was it was sort of kind of mimicked in A Hard Day's Night, the scene where they're they're supposed to stay in the hotel room and answer fan letters. And then as soon as the manager, uh, Norm, leaves, uh, they all, you know, go out and uh, and go to a nightclub. It's, it's, so it was sort of mimicked there. But yeah, that's that's the story as, as I've read it. Oh, good, good story. Um, just one little Ringo note, and I know that uh, the band track wasn't recorded for this album. They just overdubbed the vocals for it. But the two things, the hand clap, the one, one, that, which is so prevalent in this, and then appears again in the boyfriend's record of my boyfriend, or the Shangri-La's record, My Boyfriend's Back, the same rhythm. I don't know who copied who, but it's a very... Uh, recognizable hand clap kind of a thing. And here's another Ringo thing in the band track of this is that he uses his washy hi-hat throughout most of the song, and when it hits the bridge, he tightens it up again. It's, it's one of those subtle things that Ringo did to make, to make dynamics within the song, within the records. And there's, it really is... Again, so brilliant in its simplicity, but it's a kind of a thing a schooled session drummer would do, which he wasn't yet, but was becoming. I am really looking forward to with this. We've all heard it talked about it, and there's an example of it with the re-release of Revolver with the artificial intelligence-aided demixing technology. Uh, so they can now go back to those early Beatles recordings and... Uh, and they can demix it because the problem is, especially the early stuff, it was on two tracks uh, and then some of it four track, but they were recording multiple takes. So what would happen, uh, not to get too technical to your listener, but so you might record uh, uh, bass and drums on uh, on two separate tracks, but then you'd want a track to add hand claps. So you would mix the bass and drums together and Record it onto another, put it onto another track, so they're locked in forever. You can't separate them until now. And what I'm wondering, what you've got me thinking about, Barry, is when they go back to the really early stuff like this. So a hard day's night, uh, meet the Beatles, or sorry, with the Beatles, please, please me. Will we pick up more subtleties? of Ringo's playing, of everybody's playing, but Ringo's use of the hi-hat wash and beats and so on, I wonder. Oh, I I would say yes, and I think it'll be great. I, I He was so subtle in some of the things he did. Again, the kind of thing that an experienced session drummer would do, that just the subtle little changes he made within a song to make to make different parts of the song, give them different colors, that kind of thing. I think that will be really interesting if we get to hear it. 
more of that. Well, I, I do want to ask you about, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about Gordon Lightfoot, and I do want to ask you something else about Gord, but, I mean, I'd be remiss if I, I mean, folks, I could do a half-hour section of the podcast just listing off the people that Barry has played with, the songs that he's played on that, that you, you know, that you hear in, in, in popular music over the years, not even venturing into all of the commercials that you played on as well. So you alluded to, to, to session drumming and something jumped into my mind when you, oh, can you imagine going from this, you know, from a Shirelle session to a Jan and Dean session or whatever the case. D- do you have something in you where you went from, okay, here's a session I'm doing in the morning and I'm going to another one and they're completely different and it's just, that's what I do. I'm a session guy. Yes, um, specifically no, but that happened all the time. And you would go from a McDonald's commercial to an Ann Murray record. And, and you would go from country, you'd go from George Hamilton IV to BTO, uh, to April Wine, to, you know. And that was one of the reasons, one of the things, one of the tricks I had was having carrying a number of different snare drums to get different sounds out of drums, so rather than, you didn't have time. Like, a typical Canadian record date was four songs in three hours. You were booked for three hours and you were expected to get four songs. So you're talking about having never heard a song to having a finished product in about 40 or 45 minutes. So, I mean, you had to be quick on your feet. You didn't have time really to retune things it wasn't like being, it wasn't like doing a Fleetwood Mac album where you were there somewhere for six months and, you know, it was like you had basically 40 minutes to listen to a song, to learn the song, to, to make it good, make it great. Next. And these were songs, you didn't rehearse these going in. You either got a chart in front of you or the artist would play it for you and you'd make your own chart. But... Some of the some of the records that were made in forty or forty five minutes were I'm pretty proud of some of the some of the stuff we did, some of the rhythm section guys in Toronto. And I mean it really is remarkable when you think about the product that came out in such a short period of time. But again, I would I, I never I tried not to use a cartridge company to deliver my drums. I like to carry my own drums, but I remember one day I had seven recording sessions in one day. I had to have somebody leapfrog, go to the next session and set my stuff up for me because I was booked back to back. I had to finish a session, drive over and play the next session. A session would end at one in the afternoon. The next one would start at one in the afternoon across town. So I would use different drums, try to think in advance of which drums would be better for a cert- the session coming up and try to have some logic about the leapfrogging of where my stuff was. I remember one time I had it all planned out and ended up at a session with no drum stool. I, I just <laughs> I had to sit with a chair, which didn't work all that well, but I had it all planned out except for the one mistake. Yeah. Hey, before we get to the uh, the cover art, um, which we talked about a little bit off the top, but we can, we can revisit it again. But 
I do have to ask you, uh, you've worked with a legend for much of your career, Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the guy, as you know. Songwriting, I mean, these for his era in Canada, I mean, peerless, pretty much. Uh, I'd, I'd throw Joni Mitchell in there, uh, Neil Young, but you're, it's a short, short list. Short list and uh, arguably the greatest singer-songwriter this country has produced. Strong, strong case. So what... It, <laughs> You get asked this all the time, I'm sure. But is there a story that epitomizes the man in your mind when you're telling a Gordon Lightfoot story? Is there a single story? Let me think. How about a general impression and maybe I could tell a story involved? Sure. Okay. I mean, you can talk about Gordon as a... Husband, father, friend, you know, as a, peop- as a man who helps the needy, who has a lot of time for talking to the ordinary man, like at the meet and greets, he will spend time talking to people, asking them about what they do. Um, you can talk about all of his awards, his Juno Awards, his Grammy nominations, uh, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, Walk of Fame. You can talk about... One thing that really stands out is his humility. And I think his humility epitomizes Gordon Lightfoot. He he is so not prone to honking his own horn, to blowing his own horn. As an example, a few months ago, he was presented with a Golden Plate Award, which is an award that's given They have maybe 20 or 25 awards given every year in Washington, D.C. And this is an award that goes to scientists, doctors, astronauts. Many U.S. presidents have received this award. Um, Music, people in the music business. Well, Gord got the music award for this year. And this is an international award. And people like past winners were Bob Dylan, Stevie Wonder, uh, Carole King, Leontine Price, Henry Mancini, John Williams, these kind of people. Gord got that award this year. And did you hear about it? No. Nobody heard about it because that's Gord. I mean, in this entertainment business that we're in, this ego-driven entertainment business that we're in, Gord just got the same award as Neil Armstrong. I, I mean, he just, like, talk about, he got the same award as Elizabeth Taylor. Um, I, I could go on and on with, with the greats in the world in different fields of endeavor. Gord received this award. He went, went for the, the dinner, got his award, came home, was presented with the award by Wolf Blitzer, by the way, and hung out that night with a guy who was just hanging out to be there, a a guitar player named Jimmy Page. Jimmy was there, so Gord and his wife Kim hung out with Jimmy Page that night. I mean, this is a huge deal. This is, is, um, what can I say, Barack Obama was given this award, you know? Um, It's a huge deal. Nobody heard about it because Gord doesn't blow his own horn. So, I think that might be an example of what epitomizes 
Gordon Lightfoot would be his humility. I've heard you say it before. He's he's just a guy from Arroyo. <laughs> In his mind, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the cover art of something new. Um, I know you like it, but uh, Capital didn't break the bank, uh, as was the custom in, in the USA and in the record business at that time. They used a still photo taken by a gentleman named Ken Veter uh, from the Beatles' second set on the Ed Sullivan Show on February 9th, 1964. Uh, the cover writing has all the song titles, which was what you did back then, you know, uh, and including plus the hit vocals from the motion picture A Hard Day's Night is on there. And then on the back cover, you have a couple of uncredited uh, hype paragraphs. I love this one. Uh, and here in this album are five hit vocals from that movie United Artists A Hard Day's Night which is of course the Beatles first. Now their fans can see John, George, Paul and Ringo giant size on the screen and play the big hits from the picture on their hi-fi and stereo sets between trips to the movies. That's so American hype, eh? <laughs> and don't forget the credit to Dave Dexter Jr. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, much to the chagrin of George Martin, here's uh, produced in England by George Martin and in the USA with the assistance of Dave Dexter Jr., who, of course, had dick all to do with, with any of the producing. Kicking and screaming, Dave Dexter Jr. allowed this album to be released. Oh, man. His, uh, his contribution was the running order uh, of the album. And, uh, yes, the same Dave Dexter who figured that uh, uh, love me do, please, please me, she loves you, and I want to hold your hand weren't suitable for the U.S. No, market. No, so who would? There. But you, li- you like this cover. It's my favorite cover. <laughs> which, which camera can I show it to, Paul? But, I mean, how can you not love that cover? Does that not embody... The Beatles. I mean, this is the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah. This is the look at, you know, they're in their suits. Ringo's up on the drum stand. Uh, To me, that's the cover. And Barry showed me a picture, uh, (laughs) which I will put up on the uh, social medias with your permission. But uh, it's your first band, I guess. Yes. Uh, And you're kind of doing that kind of thing, as, as like on the cover of this album. Well, and why? Because of the album and because of Ringo and because of such, because this whole thing, this whole time of my life was so impactful. And that's one of the reasons I'm talking about this album. And yes, you're absolutely right. My first band, which was first called The Fugitives, and the picture you're going to show is of the fadeaways. Okay. So what is your uh, what is your final takeaway, my friend? We've been uh, we've been talking for over an hour and a half about this album, and it's some great stories and a lot of fun. But what's your your takeaway? Your final thoughts on our conversation and on the, of course, on the album? I love the album even more now that I got a chance to really delve into it. You know, sometimes you do a deep dive in things, and you go. It's not as good as I thought it was, or oh my God, look at the warts. This is twice as good as I remember it being, and it was so impactful to me as a 15-year-old back then who just got, who just put together his first set of drums, who was just starting to play the drums. I remember hitting my mother's pots and pans in her kitchen, playing along to I'm sure I had my transistor radio in the kitchen playing to Pretty Woman or something, but this was when I was actually thinking about being a drummer, getting a drum set, meeting guys, you know, who played other instruments, playing in a band. Um, 
just impactful. The whole thing was was very impactful for me. The playing, the singing, the arrangements, the evolution of Ringo Starr as a session drummer, becoming a session drummer. Um, and I'm sure I learned a lot from listening to him, not only in just the way he played, but in leaving certain notes out here and there. To, it really adds to the interest the normal person wouldn't notice. But you know what? In your subconscious, you notice. And that's what makes a good drummer great. Ringo's a great drummer. Um, I love being here doing this with you. It, it's, uh, and I learned a lot from researching the album about what was going on all over the United States just prior to this, during this how music was transitioning, how drummers were transitioning, how drummers were listening and changing. Um, and all of that obviously affected me and my interest in being a drummer and becoming a drummer. Barry, as always, a complete pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much for asking me and uh, congrats on the award. Hey, that's right. It's no Gordon Lightfoot Award, but I'll take it. <laughs> there you go. So uh, Barry does not have a website that I can promote here. Uh, Barry's one of those guys. I don't think Barry has a cell phone. <laughs> so he, he most definitely does not have a website. But you can find out what he's up to with the Gordon Lightfoot band at gordonlightfoot.com. Uh, as this episode is going out, I know that the band are preparing for a couple of mini tours in the U.S. in March and April of 2023. So you can find out all that information, gordonlightfoot.com. The website for this podcast is romicast.com. Every episode is there. You can listen to them right there on the website. Uh, You can find the podcast on Facebook by doing a search for The Walrus Was Paul podcast page. I'm trying to beef up my Facebook numbers. Uh, I'm up over 100 people following the page. So uh, if you don't already, give it a follow or uh, give it a recommendation to your Facebook friends or whatever. I'm trying to beef that number up a little bit. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is Romanuk Paul. Happy to interact on either of those social mediums. And you can also drop me a good old-fashioned email, the.romicast at gmail.com. That is the dot romicast at gmail.com and I do read each and every email that comes in. On the next episode, my guest will be Canadian indie music icon Mo Berg, now a successful producer. He's a teacher uh, and, of course, frontman of the legendary Canadian indie band The Pursuit of Happiness. He'll be talking about the 1966 North American release yesterday and today. I want to do this record because I feel like an emotional connection to it. It's part of my past. I, I, I feel connected to it. And when I think about it more intellectually or historically, it's, it's, it's kind of just a jumble. <laughs> it's a jumble of songs, but it's a bunch of great songs. There's a bunch of really great songs on here. It, I don't find it particularly cohesive as a record, but these are all, this is a really great collection of songs. It's, it, and yeah, so I, I still really like it and I still think it's a great, great piece. That is Mo Berg, and he will be my guest on the next episode of the Walrus Was Paul podcast that will drop in a couple of weeks.
So, uh, man does not live by Beatles alone. Uh, there's a lot of music I love listening to just as much as I love listening to the Beatles. And I often get asked uh, on social media or an email or whatever, hey, what are you listening to? So I decided for series three so far uh, to just have a little section at the end where I'll let you know what I've been listening to as of late. Lately, I have been listening to a lot of Bill Evans. Uh, actually, to be fair, I always listen to a lot of Bill Evans. He's a go-to, a regular go-to for me. He's considered one of the greatest jazz pianists of all time, if you're not familiar with his work. If you're looking for some relaxing three-piece jazz to chill to, uh, I would highly recommend his 1961 album Sunday at the Village Vanguard, widely regarded as one of the finest live jazz recordings of all time. Uh, There's another one from 1961 that I've been listening to quite a bit lately. It's a studio album called X Explorations. Now, both of those records feature what many consider Evans' best trio. That's Evans on piano, Scott LaFaro on bass, and Paul Motion on the drums. Uh, sadly, all three of those gentlemen no longer with us, but they did leave some beautiful music for us to enjoy. Uh, that is my recommendation this week. Don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, a donation, always appreciated. Click on the player or go to the website to do that. Positive reviews and shares on your social channels also help out. That is it for this show. I'm Paul Romanuk. A pleasure, as always. So long for now. One, two, three, four. Do you ever get tired of being?